Let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 2, page 756. Uh, If you have a pew Bible, please do keep it open. Uh, If you don't have one, there's some at the back. Um, I'm not going to read it all just now. We're going to read it as we go through it because I don't want to read it twice. And uh, we will. This is a, a, a difficult passage, not difficult to understand, but difficult to to apply to ourselves in that um, it's tough. And I'll tell you how it's tough. This is the way it works. I don't know if you've ever had the talk with somebody. You know, we have lots of conversations with people, and we like the idea of conversation. In fact, there's a whole string of evangelical Christianity just now called the emergent church, where everything's about having a conversation. So we don't have preaching, we have conversations, and we all talk. Um, and I'm going to argue that what we're doing today is having a conversation. This is God talking to us and us responding. But the idea of conversation for most people is it's kind of cappuccino culture, isn't it? It's just sitting around having a coffee, having a wee blether, um, feeling good. But the talk is when you have a conversation with someone and it really gets to you and it really hurts. It's when you sit down with your partner and he or she tells you just precisely how much you've hurt them. It's when you sit down with your son or your daughter and they tell you how much you've led them astray. It's when you sit down with your best friend and your best friend tells you how his life has been wrecked by your inconsiderateness. It's that talk, and it's one which we hate, we don't like, we avoid. And I think that what God is doing here in Jeremiah chapter 2, he's having the talk with his people. Now, when I was preparing this, I was first of all thinking, great, this is God's word to Scotland, and it's so right, and, um, you know, Scotland's going down the tubes, and so on. But the problem with that was, it was me looking at the Bible and going, it's for those people who are out there. So then I thought, no, this is God's word for the church. And the trouble with that was I was thinking, yeah, this is God's word for the Church of Scotland, and this is God's word for the legalists in the free church, and this is God's word for... So I thought again, this is God's word for St. Peter's. And I could think of people in St. Peter's and say, yeah, this will really... Oh, boy, they deserve this one. This is, uh, you know... um, And again, that's not right. Because what this is, this is God's word to us. It's to me, and it's to you. It's not a word for them, it's a word for us. Now, what's happening here is that, uh, let me say incidentally, it may be that you're you're here and you're not a Christian and you're thinking, okay, these Christians are all going to get beat up on or they're going to beat up on themselves. No. What we're going to see this morning is a series of contrasts, a series of pictures, a series of images in which God contrast what it's like to follow him and what it's like to go the other way. And if you're not a Christian, that contrast obviously applies to you as much as it applies to those of us who profess to be Christians. Now, what's going on is that Jeremiah, um, we saw last week uh, that it's about 2,000, sorry, it's about 4,600 and 70 years, sorry, 2,676 years ago is when he first gets his call. And he's a young man 
when he's writing this book, he's writing it sometime after many of the events happened. He uh, was called to tell God's Word when he was in his late teens, early 20s, and he had 40 years of telling God's Word to God's people who didn't want to hear. Now, some of you who know your Bibles well will know that in Hebrews there is a reference to people being sworn in two. These people didn't give up their faith. They were put in prison. Um, they were starved. They were beaten. They were killed. They were sworn in two. And every single one in Hebrews, you can go through, uh, you can find an example of that in the Old Testament, except the sworn in two. Well, many people believe, and I think this is right actually, there is a Jewish tradition which talks of how Jeremiah was taken to Egypt after he'd finished all his prophesying and was put inside a log and was cut in half, not as a magician's trick, but as a means of killing him. And I think that the writer to the Hebrews would have known that and was uh, referring to that. So he didn't really have a successful ministry. He didn't come and preach in a church and watch the church fill up. Things didn't go too well for Jeremiah. And what, what's happening here is that towards the end of his ministry, he's, uh, he's commanded to write things down. Now, the first 23 years of his ministry are written down up to chapter 20. He writes them all on a scroll, by the way, and uh, the scroll is destroyed and he had to rewrite it. But we know from this chapter, there are different personal pronouns used like he, she, uh, single, plural, and so on, which indicate that what's happening here is this, is, this wasn't one message that was given to God's people at one particular time. It's kind of a collection of Jeremiah's greatest hits. It's his things that he said to different people uh, at different times brought together. They reflect the early part of his ministry, and they are, if you know your Bibles, there's another prophecy of the prophet Hosea, and Jeremiah was very influenced by Hosea, and you can see lots of Hosea coming through in Jeremiah. Now, what's also interesting about Jeremiah is he's not the man who's standing up and going, in other words, he's not deadpan, it's not arid intellectualism, it's not flat, he is absolutely full of passion and many, many different emotions. And as we look at this, it's my prayer that God will convict us That as we read in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, that we ourselves would realize that this is God speaking to us, not dispassionately, but with passion, not not caring how we respond, but caring absolutely how we respond. To me, this is as if God were sitting down and talking to us, not about how bad other people are, but he's sitting down talking to us and letting us know where we are going wrong. Why are you so discouraged? Why are you so worn out? Why are you so spiritually dry? We ask God that, and God says, this is the answer. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, what I've done is I've taken the five different images. You could argue there are more. I've taken the five different images that he used, the five different contrasts, and we'll go through those. Um, I've not put all the text up on the screen. You, I've just uh, got some illustrations, which they, they show because that's what God was doing. He was speaking to his people in terms of pictures. And the first one is in verses 2 and 3. 
And that is the bride. And then later on, he talks about the wild donkey. Let me read those words. First of all, verse 2, God says, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. And then in verse 23, we read this, how can you say I am not defiled? I have not run after the bales. See how you behaved in the valley. Consider what you have done. You are a swift she-camel running here and there, a wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving. In her heat, who can restrain her? Any males that pursue her need not tire themselves. At mating time, they will find her. Do not run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry. You said it's no use. I love foreign gods, and I must go after them. Now, it's an extraordinary picture that is used. God says to his people, you were my bride. You're my bride. And this is what you did in the devotion of your youth. Relationship with God is like a marriage. And the bride who is married to the groom is prepared to go anywhere, put up with anything as long as it could be with their partner. There's no prenups in this. This is God calling us to himself and us saying, Lord, where you lead us, we will go. It's that enthusiasm. It's that zeal that you have when you first become a Christian, that if God says sell everything, you'll sell everything. If God says go to the ends of the earth, you'll go to the ends of the earth. What's happened? You can hardly go to the end of the road now. Why? Because that relationship of the bride has become incredibly soured. Israel was willing to go into the wilderness to follow God. The word that's used here is a word hesed, which talks about covenant faithfulness. How is the devotion that you had, the hesed that you had, the covenant faithfulness you had? And the reciprocal side of that is in verse 3, that God fiercely protected his people. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest, set apart for divine service. That imagery is all used in the New Testament as well, the imagery of, of the marriage, the imagery of the first fruits. James 1.18, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So when you become a Christian, when you follow Jesus, it is like getting married. It's that wholehearted devotion and commitment to God. But what had God's people done? They had become so adulterous that they were compared with a donkey on heat. Ingratitude and stupidity, they turned, they had the hesed, they turned to another Hebrew word called hebel, which means worthless idols. In verse 32, we read this. Sorry. <clears throat> Does a maiden forget her jewelry, a bride her wedding ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Does a maiden forget her jewelry? The bridal attire was a sash pronouncing her status as a married woman. Um, if it wasn't, it sounded a, a bit daft. Uh, for you Rangers fans, I would say the song would be the sash my mother wore. But it's a, it, is a, a, it was a sash that went round and that had this status as I am a married woman. Um, there's a program on television, Whose Line Is It Anyway? 
And a lot of the guys who are on that American one, absolutely hilarious at times. But it was quite interesting because I, I watched a little bit of it and um, there was a, a beautiful woman came on as asked to interact with part of the comedy thing. And three of the guys did this to the camera. They went, oh, trying to take off their wedding rings. In other words, they were trying to say, look, we are, really, we are available, we're available. Now they were joking and they were mucking around. But there was a kind of really sad irony in that because that's what's happening here. Israel is saying, forget it. We married God, if you like. We're committed to God. But when something we consider better or someone else comes along, we get rid of that ring. We get rid of that sash. We forget the status as a married woman. 2 Corinthians 11.2, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin. Now, you see, when Jeremiah brought this message to God's people, they were furious because what they said was this. They said, we have the great temple of Solomon. We have the religious rituals. We have it all. Like we would say, oh, but we've got our religion. We're not atheists. We come to church. We have a nice building. We've got the Bible. We, we, we may even read it, and we may even pray. And imagine being told by God, no, 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 you're not my bride. You don't behave like my bride. You're like a wild donkey in heat. Now, verses 8 onwards explain how, what the, the problem is there and why it was a problem. The priest did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled, rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. Here's the fault, and here's the problem. And this, again, it's difficult for the church to take. It's difficult for God's people to say, because God is not saying, the fault is out there with the Babylonians. The fault is out there with the Egyptians. The fault is, is out there with, with the peasants, if you like, as well. He's saying, the fault, the, the heart of the matter is with the priests and the rulers. The priests Malachi 2.7, for the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? And we have a church that's filled with leaders and priests and ministers and elders who don't ask, where is the Lord? They tell the Lord where he should be. They adapt the Bible to suit whatever they particularly want. Like the priests in Israel at this time, their whole routines revolve around themselves. I listened to a sermon this morning, and as far as I could see, most of it was about what the minister was wearing, what color of, I think she said stole, what color of stole, what color of this, what color of that. Who cares? Where is the Lord? Where is God? Influenced by pagan worship, they'd become indifferent and irresponsible. There was hypocrisy, Romans 2, 20, 20 to 22. If you are convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge, of, of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you not steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You abhor idols, do you rob temples? I read a really sad letter from an atheist talking about morality and saying, look, I have far better morality 
than lots of my Christian friends because they are horrified that I don't believe in God. But when I go back home and they've gone off and they've slept with somebody else, so when I go back home and I discover that they have been cheating on their taxes and then they turn around at me and talk about morality, the name of God is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. Calvin says how prone we are by nature to hypocrisy. It is the abomination of the church that instead of people teaching the Word of God and what God says, they don't even ask, where is the Lord? The scholars, those who deal with the law did not know me. They were the scholars. They knew everything but the law. They had no first-hand knowledge. If you go on to Jeremiah chapter 31, we will come on to this again. It's a great passage, chapter 31, verse 34. We read this, no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Paul in Ephesians 3.19 talks about knowing this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And again, we have that problem. We have scholars who know everything but the Lord. And that knowledge is not an, an intellectual cold knowledge. It is a heart knowledge. It is an awareness of who God is. It is when you're coming into God's presence to worship. Dry, cold, dead, arid intellectual scholarship without knowing the Lord is useless, absolutely useless. It's also happened because of the rulers. What did they do? They ignored the rules. The leaders rebelled against me. And the prophets, the prophets prophesied by Baal following worthless idols. They thought that Yahweh, they thought that Jehovah and Baal were one. So it happened that what, what has occurred was this bride of Christ had become the prostitute. This bride of Christ had become, instead of glorious and beautiful, had become like a wild donkey in heat. Don't defend religion. Don't defend the church. Don't be horrified at people attacking the church. Listen to what God says and see if we are worthy of the name of church. Then from verses 4 to 7, there's a second picture, the fertile land and the desert. Hear the word of the Lord from verse 4, O house of Jacob, all you clans of the house of Israel. This is what the Lord says, what fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought and darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The first part of this equation is the fertile land. God kept and keeps all his promises. 2 Corinthians 1.20, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ, and so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now, the imagery that's used here, there's lots of different images, but it's this idea, he uses a word for a vine, which is a choice vine. A red grape, high-quality grape came from this vine. This was the best of wine. And God is saying, I took you. I brought you through the wilderness. I made you fruitful. Your life was quality. 
What came from you was quality. I did that for you. But what's happened? The beautiful land has been polluted by pagan worship. The wild stock has come in. It has become a desert. See, some of us remember what it was like when we first knew the Lord. Remember what it was like, the zeal and the enthusiasm that we had. Remember the desire for God's Word. Remember the desire for the Holy Spirit working in our lives and for the fruit of the Spirit. But right now, we feel like a desert. We feel like we are in the wilderness. We are not producing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We are not the good seed that is producing some 30, some 60, some 100-fold, as Jesus said in the parable of the sower. No, we have been choked by the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the hardness of our own hearts. I don't believe the church is supposed to be the desert. I don't believe we're supposed to be the desert. We may be in the desert, but in that case, we're an oasis in the desert. We are to be a fertile land. And using that imagery, it is this crop of joy and of peace and of believing and of sharing and of communicating the gospel. Our life should be a place of abundant fruitfulness, and God says to us, what's going on? See, I will um, go to an assembly in two or three weeks' time, and I think a lot of it will be vanity. I'll be honest. I think a lot of it will be vanity. I think people will be standing up and going, oh, the church is faithful in the church. If the church is faithful, then why is the church declining? How does that work? If the church is faithful then why are not more people coming to know Christ? How does that work? Or I could go to, you could go to assemblies and other churches and different things, and people will always stand up and they'll say things. And you just got to keep asking, but where is the fruit? Where is the fertile land? We had um, James... Uh, Alexander Lagos with us on Wednesday. Now it was a great meeting. And I, I loved it in lots and lots of ways. And there's different things that stuck in my mind. But the one that stuck in my mind more than anything else was when the Islamic government came to power in Sudan, James was in Khartoum, the capital. There were 16 churches. And the government determined to close them all down. And he described of one church that was bulldozed. And what happened was that the people had to scatter. And there are two things... There. One was that as they scattered, they just planted more churches. So out of that one church came three. And the other was whenever they got arrested and got put in prison, they made it their determination that whenever they went to prison, they would sing and they would preach to everyone they could find in the prison. So they would go to prison and people were being converted so the authorities would just throw them out of prison. It's your get out of jail card is preach the gospel. I just thought that was lovely. It was a great thing. But from the day... That day in the 1980s, where the government determined to close the church in Khartoum, there were 16 churches. Today, there's 400. See, there's fruitfulness. There's fruitfulness. There's got to be fruitfulness. And God says, what happened? Third picture, the glory versus worthless idols. In this section, God brings a formal charge as in a court of law. Verse 9, therefore I bring charges against, against you again, declares the Lord, and I will bring charges against your children's children. 
cross over to the coast of Kittim and look, send to Kedar and observe closely. See if there's ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they're not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. The glory. What is the glory? It's what we see in God that causes us to reverence and to respect and to adore. It is the most incredible, awesome thing. It is going into the holy of holies and being stunned by the beauty and the power and the majesty. There is nothing, nothing like it. If we saw God's glory, God's glory, we would fall down and worship. It is heavy, not in the sense of a burden, but in the sense of awesomeness, of mind-blowing, spirit-overwhelming glory. And God's people had experienced that. And what happened is, they'd done a swap shop. They'd swapped it for something that was worthless, that was light and trivial. Whole nations and groups, says Jeremiah, were loyal to their gods who are not really gods at all, yet God's own people are not loyal to him. He describes two places, Kittim, the Western Isles. I don't think he meant Lewis. I think it was Cyprus he meant, actually. But Kittim, the Western Isles, and Kedar, the desert tribe. He's really saying, from the west all the way to the east. People are loyal to their gods, but my people, these gods don't exist, but I exist, and my people are not loyal to me. God's people get bored and disappointed with God. So they turn to that which does not profit, he says, and it's a word that sounds exactly like Baal. They turn to that which does not profit. It's an incredible thing. It's a shocking thing, and it's so shocking, verse 12, he says, that the heavens shudder at it. It is an horrendous evil. Do you grasp this, and do you understand this, and do you feel this, that when Scotland, when the church, when we, when I, when you say to God, no, I don't want the glory, and abandon it for something else that's trivial and light and so on. Um, the images up there, it's not meant to be anti-iPhone. It is, it is, there's, you know, images of different idols and so on there. But that's what happens. That's what we do. The abandonment of the gospel is so evil. And then when things go wrong, what happens? God's people have the nerve to moan that God is not helping them. Look at verse 27. <clears throat> they say to wood, you are my father, and to stone, you gave me birth. They've turned their backs to me and not their faces, yet when they are in trouble, they say, come and save us. Where then are the gods you made for yourselves? Let them come if they can save you when you are in trouble. What a nerve we've got that we turn away from God because it's easier and it's more comfortable, and then when things go wrong, we turn around, having turned our backs to God, we turn to Him and say, come and help us, come and help us. We are capricious people. God is not capricious. We are. We think we can change course at will. Oh, I'll do this, and I'll do that, and I'll do that. And we, we treat God like dirt. We make excuses, and we say that grace excuses it. But the bottom line is back to verse 8. We never asked, where is the Lord? We just assumed that we knew. We assumed that God was with us. We assumed that God would always bless us. We assumed that we were righteous. And we've exchanged the glory of God for idols. 
And so, verses 14 to 19, we've exchanged freedom for slavery. Is Israel a servant, a slave by birth? Why then has he become plunder? Lions have roared, they have growled at him, they have laid waste his land, his towns are burned and deserted. Also the men of Memphis and Taphanes have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this on yourselves by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? Now why go to Egypt to drink water from the Sihor? And why go to Assyria to drink water from the river? Your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. See, when you become a Christian, you become free. When you become a Christian, you're set free from the power of your sin and the effects of your sin. You are set free to serve the living God. You're set free from the pressures of society. You're set free from the condemnation of your own heart. You are given a glorious freedom. You can leap, and you can dance, and you can jump, and you can, as the psalm says, overleap a wall. And yet, in the insanity of humanity, what do we do? Verse 20, long ago you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. We say, I am free. And unlike the writer to the Hebrews who says we are free to serve the living God, we say we are free not to serve the living God. And we have this dream and this illusion that we are autonomous, that we can, we can make things happen ourselves. But Alexander Stewart puts it this way. The dream of the reality is better than the reality of the dream. Many, many people are living under the illusion of freedom. They're like fish in a goldfish bowl who talking to one another say, can you believe that there are some fish who say that there's a world outside this goldfish bowl? They can't accept it. They won't accept it. God set us free, and bizarrely, like the Galatians, we seem to go back into slavery, and we end up running from one master to another. They have become slaves by leaving their freedom. And the punishment is this. The Assyrian lions for Israel, that was um, the Assyrian empire coming down, the Egyptians and so on. But the punishment was their own wickedness. It wasn't God punishing them it was God giving them what they wanted. Read Romans 1 and you'll see the same thing happening. Now, here's what's going on. I got a, a video from Francis Chan. Some of you may have heard of Francis Chan. Francis Chan is a very unusual character. To be honest, I don't quite know what to make of him. But uh, he had this mega church in California and he's chucked it all in. He's just given it up. And he produced this video to partly explain what he's doing. And it's an incredible video because it's talking, it's a 15-minute video talking about the holiness of God with some very, very powerful imagery. And he's basically saying, without the fear of God, we've lost everything. Without the fear of God, what happens? It leads to bloodshed and to murder. That's what's saying, that's what he's saying, sorry, in verse 34, on your clothes, men find the lifeblood of the innocent poor. What did we do? How did we harm the innocent poor? Because you didn't fear me, because you didn't do what I said. You know, that's true of us as well. The lifeblood of the innocent poor. Seven million children killed since the Abortion Act of 1967. Half a million people in Britain today who are addicted 
to Class A drugs, killing themselves and killing other people. You can argue back and forth about what we do in different wars and so on and the case for fighting for war and and many, many other things. But the fact is, because we serve idols, we end up being responsible for killing people. With God dethroned, nothing is unthinkable. Dostoevsky's quote, if God does not exist, then all things are permissible, is true. And our slavery is our shame. Verse 16, the crown of your head has been shaved. Boldness in that culture was a sign of shame. The caught thief, he describes, is disgraced, like the thief who has been caught. And God's people are being told, listen, you are free and you've gone to slavery. I'm innocent, they say. Look at verse 35. You say, I'm innocent. He's not angry with me. There are far too many Christians who, people who profess to follow Christ, go, whoa, 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 back off. I'm innocent. I'm innocent. This is not me. Yes, it is, because it's your culture. Yes, it is, because it's your world, and it's my world. I am not innocent. See, in the modern evangelical church, guilt sits lightly, and so do promises and commitment. I'll go to church if I feel like it. I'll read my Bible if I feel like it. I'll share the gospel if I feel like it. I know I promised this. I know I did that. But you have your ups and downs. You know, God's with me. God will go with me. Take it easy. Chill. Don't be so heavy. It's not about me, and it's not about the church. It's about what God asks. I'm innocent. See, in our world, there's no room for brokenness, because the minute someone begins to cry in pain, they say, no, it's okay, it's okay, everything's all right. But what if everything's not all right? What if God works through brokenness? What if all our religion is an illusion? What if there's nothing but disappointment and disillusion? God says, you're so bad you could teach prostitutes how to love wrongly. At the end, he says, you return with your head in your hands. You become slaves. You were, you were so great. You were so good. You started off so well. You followed me in the desert. But you've, you've gone back to slavery. You've gone back to chains. Someone said this, words of advice, no matter how compellingly or arrestingly put, are not heeded by an addict. God is not coming to us and saying, I'm giving you words of advice. He's saying, what have you done? You're enslaved. How do you deal with this? Look at verse 22, an extraordinary verse. Although you wash yourself with soda and use an abundance of soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the sovereign Lord. I listened to a woman giving her testimony uh, this week uh, on the internet, and she said something that she had done. She said, I went home, and I showered, and I washed, and I showered, and I washed, and I showered, and I washed, and I never stopped and I couldn't get rid of the guilt and the filth, no matter how much I cleanse myself. What do we do? How do we deal with this? I look at this, and I don't think, oh, that's the church in Scotland, although it is. I primarily look at this and go, that's, that's me. That's, we, we, we play, we play at being religious, and we get so worked up and wound up about so many things. What is the answer? Well, you'll notice that I missed out one contrast, and it is, I think, the answer. The fountain and the broken cisterns in verse 13. My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. 
the contrast between the fountain and the broken cisterns. The fountain is, is used of this idea of the spring bubbling up from within the earth. The broken cisterns, it's the image of Jerusalem where the water had to be brought in. It was put in a cistern in the home. And first of all, it didn't move, so it became stale. And secondly, it leaked all the time, so you ran out. And so the fountain has its own water. It is the source. There is only one fountain. The fountain is always open. The fountain is pure and life-giving. The broken cisterns are stale and static. There are many cisterns. They have to be hewn out. It's hard work. The water is foul and poisonous. And you've got this contrast. Which one do you want? Well, here's an amazing thing. For those of us who are Christians, can you imagine a non-Christian listening to us saying, we found the fountain, and then the observers drinking at the broken cisterns? How does that work? You know what they say? They say the fountain's not real. They say if, they, if these Christians actually prefer the broken cisterns, who cares? Who cares that they come from church on a Sunday and they preach the gospel to us, and then on the Monday, it makes no difference to their lives? It's all a sham. It's all hypocrisy. The fountain is the fountain of life. It's the fountain of love. It's the fountain of cleansing. The old hymn, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. That's the solution. We have departed from the living God, and we have sought after other gods, and God is telling us this, not to stick the boot in, not to attack us, not to destroy us. If God wanted to judge us and destroy us, this is not how he would do it. What God is doing is he's sitting down, and we're ending where we came in, having the conversation, saying, why have you done this? Why have you done this? All we like sheep have gone astray. Come back to the fountain. It's no use you protesting at the state of the... Christianity in Britain, and isn't it terrible? This is happening and that is happening. That's not the issue. The issue is my state and your state, the state of the church before God. Revelation 21, verse 6, he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I'll give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. If a man thirsts, says Jesus, let him come to me and drink. Out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. You see, on the one hand, we've got this, this fountain of life from God. And the whole of the New Testament is full of how Jesus is that. And on the other hand, you've got the stale, 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 poisonous, foul stench of what the world offers without God. If you are not a Christian, you need to come to the fountain of life. Don't live your life. Don't live your life without God. You can't. You can't live it properly. Find out. Come to him. If you are a Christian, think, please, please think about what you are doing and how you are living. You know, we can even live our lives with bitter disappointment when we keep coming to the source of life. I found this very moving, reading in Andrew Boner's diary. Memorable to me, he said, as the anniversary of my beloved's Isabella's departure to be with Christ. And this was, he was writing several years after this happened. And now, he said, my son's son, his grandchild, a child of three days old, has been taken from them. And then this is what he wrote. Broken cisterns, broken cisterns all around, but the fountain 
remains full. You see, because of what Christ has done and of what God has done, even the most heart-rending, absolutely destroying experiences and emotions that we may have, don't destroy because the fountain is there. That's our choice. That's what we are, have, have the option of doing. So God has a charge against his people. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. They have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. What's our response to this? I'll tell you what mine was. Because I started off, I'll be honest with you, I, I started off going, yeah, as I said, this would be good for that person, this would be good for that person, this would be good for this. My response was just eventually working through all this, and it was really, really difficult, was just to say, Lord, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry. This is what your people do. This is what we have done. This is what I have done. Let me be the bride. Let me be the fertile field. Let me be free. Let me come to the fountain. Let me see your glory. Nothing else. Nothing else ultimately and really matters. And I just simply ask you, I ask you as you are here to bow your head before God and uh, as Donald leads us in prayer just now, just to ask God to come to you. He's not a God. He's not telling you this because he wants to beat you up. He's telling you this because he wants to love you and to feed you and to free you and to make you fruitful and to draw you to himself.